Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I am the Senior Administrator at the Hendrick Center. And today, we are going to be talking about the Imago Day and how we should love our neighbor in light of that doctrine. So I promise that kind of already sounds abstract and heady, but we're going to do our best to make it relevant and something that really um, touches everybody's hearts and makes us really look at the person next to us differently. So I am joined by Mark Cortez, the professor, a professor of theology at Wheaton College. And Mark, we are just so thankful that you have carved out some time in your schedule to be with us. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Kim. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So uh, just to orient um, our listeners a little bit, uh, you are specialized in theological anthropology. Um, so one, we want to hear a little bit about you, how you ended up in scholarship in general, and then what in the world is theological anthropology? <laughs> so but first, if you just want to share a little bit about yourself and how you ended up just even being a scholar. Sure. Yeah. So a little bit of a story there. Um, my original or first career was in youth ministry. Uh, so I got involved in youth ministry when I was in high school and uh, caught a vision for that fairly early on. Uh, so I transitioned from being a student into being an intern and then into being a full-time youth pastor uh, and did part-time, full-time youth ministry for about 10 years. Oh, wow. uh, I did get my initial undergraduate degree in theology. Uh, but even then, the plan was to use that theology degree for the purpose of doing youth ministry. Hmm. Uh, and being, I'm not sure where I caught the vision, but somewhere along the way, somebody convinced me that theology was really important for doing youth ministry. Uh, and I'm very <laughs> glad they did that because I think it's very true. Um, so I did that for about 10 years. Uh, then as my time at that church, that was 10 years at the same church, mm-hmm. that church was drawing to a close. My wife and I had always talked about going on and getting my seminary degree at some point. Uh, so we did that. And at that time, I really thought that I was getting more training to continue on in youth ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until I got back into the classroom and seminary that I caught a vision for training people to do ministry. Uh, and uh, it was a bit of a kind of a vocational discernment. It was actually a really tough year of kind of letting go of this thing that I thought I had been called to do mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, and uh transition in more of an academic direction at that point. I've stayed connected to youth ministry on a volunteer basis. Uh, and that was kind of the one thing that made me a little bit uh, happier with letting go of just the vocational piece and not the youth ministry piece itself. Um, so I went on, I did a t- um, two uh, graduate degrees at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. By that time, I was pretty convinced that teaching was where I wanted to go. So I did my PhD and have been in the classroom ever since. Fantastic. So what yeah. is theological uh, anthropology? And is that your only specialty? Um, that's I usually will say, um, well, let me back up for a second. Let's talk about theological anthropology. <laughs> One of my least favorite questions, uh, particularly at church, is what do you teach? Mm. Um, you know, I'll try to usually get away with something like theology or Christian doctrine or whatnot, uh, because I know as soon as I say theological anthropology, no one really knows what I'm talking blank about. Fa- blank uh-huh. <laughs> And fairly often, people will hear just the anthropology word mm-hmm. because they 
kind of familiar with that one. And then they'll think that I'm doing like cultural anthropology and I'm visiting indigenous peoples at various places around the world um, or whatnot. <laughs> and then I have to explain, no, I don't do that. I actually rarely leave my office. Um, so theological anthropology, broadly speaking, is to think about what it means to be human. That's the anthropology side of it from mm -hmm. an explicitly theological perspective. Uh, so what is it that uh, Christians have believed, historical kind of perspectives? What is it that we ought to believe? Um, of course, biblical anthropology plays a key role in that, but it's reflecting on all of the questions that surround the fundamental question of what does it mean to be human? Hmm. Um, and then uh, seeking to engage those questions from intentionally and explicitly theological perspectives throughout. Uh, so I end up in, I mean, image of God and sin are the two kind of key topics that have always uh, been central to theological anthropology. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of questions about what's the theological significance of the body? How should we think of ourselves as um, gendered beings? Mm -hmm. um, are we free? So free will questions come into play there. Uh, do we have a soul? Um, questions of race and ethnicity. Uh, the list could go on yeah. and on. <laughs> Not at all relevant things for <laughs> what's going on these days. <laughs> They're all anthropological questions, and they all need to be thought through theologically. That just is what theological anthropology is all about. So how did you get interested in that? Honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> just stumbled into it. <laughs> I, I honestly, I deeply suspect that somewhere in my seminary degree, when I was, I want to kind of cut an interest in doing doctoral work, that I started asking professors, uh, what's something that's is really important that evangelicals aren't paying enough attention to. Hmm. I don't know that I actually did that, but I remember thinking about doing that. <laughs> and I know uh, Greg Allison, who's a theology mm -hmm. professor at Southern Seminary now, he was at Western Seminary when I was there. He was the director of the THM program. And I can almost guarantee if I had asked him that question, he would have directed me to theological anthropology. So I suspect that there's a conversation I have forgotten about. Yeah. <laughs> oriented or in that. some alternate, you know, string yeah. theory dimension that yeah. that's what happened. <laughs> uh, what I do know is once I realized that theological anthropology was an area of inquiry theologically, and I started getting a feel for like the kinds of questions that I just laid out, they resonated so closely with the issues that I was dealing with all the time mm -hmm. working with middle school and high school students. Mm -hmm. um, and so I began to realize that those aren't youth ministry issues. Those are deeply theological issues that connect to long historical conversations that we've had about what it means to be human. Uh, and so what kind of as soon as I got exposed to this as a doctrine that is worth studying in its own right, I, I got enthralled by it and I've been stuck there kind of ever since. So let's just get stuck there for a while and talk about kind of turn our conversation to uh, the image of God. So um, like you said, you know, there are a variety of implications of how we understand the image of God. Um, that apply to regular day conversations that millions of people are having that are on news websites and all over controversies and social media. It it touches everything, um, particularly for me. And, and I think what was even the impetus for this podcast specifically is 
the idea that we are we have become it seems such a tribalistic culture and um so contentious um, amongst those tribes that um sometimes i think we lose sight of who we are and who god has made us to be and uh, other people become the enemy or the other or you know um whatever label you want to give it and we we lose sight of what we do have in common and so i think that's kind of what we at the center were talking about it and we thought man it would be really great if we could just really dig in to um, this doctrine and and talk through that to you know maybe think about the implications of how we treat one another um, because of the image so to get us started in that direction, that's where we're headed. But to get us started, first we need to talk about what we even mean. Uh, Imago Dei is a is a Latin term in and of itself, and so we, you know, we're talking about the image of God and what does it mean to be made in the image of God. Um, particularly, like let's start with what we see in Scripture. What do we see in Scripture about the image of God? And there are some differences between Old Testament and New Testament. Um, so let's start in Old Testament, we'll work our way to New Testament, and then we'll kind of talk about Christian tradition. So do you want to kick us off? I'm assuming we're going to start in Genesis. <laughs> yeah, so your key text, of course, is Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, so in the um, God made humankind to be in his image according to his likeness. So that's where the language comes from. We have the two Hebrew terms uh, in that text, Selim and Demut. Um, that um, at various times people have understood as referring to two different things. Mm-hmm. And so you get into discussions about, so what does image mean? and What does likeness mean? And then how are they related to one another? Um, most biblical scholars now are going to argue that they're, um, they mean basically the same thing. It's an example of parallelism and the two terms together are meant to convey uh, an idea. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of image and likeness right there in Genesis one twenty six. The challenge, of course, is that the text doesn't actually say what that means. We don't get a definition of the image and likeness in one twenty six. Uh, and um, so most of the biblical discussion then is, can we find uh, indications in the text itself that even though they don't straightforwardly define the image, maybe they're pointing us in the right kind of direction? Um, or can we look to the broader cultural context um, uh, see how these terms are used outside of the Bible, um, and maybe that will give us an indication of what's going on. Um, or some people will, will argue for more of a canonical way of thinking through things. Let's mm-hmm. just kind of take everything the Bible says about the image and then take that as a definition of what's going on in, um, in 126 there to begin with. Uh, so if I kind of take the first of those, like what hints might we actually get in the text about what it might mean? Uh, the two things that people most commonly point to are immediately after saying that God would make us in his image according to his likeness, it says, and let them rule. Uh, and so maybe we should take that reference to rulership or dominion as a definition of the image, particularly since that comes so quickly after the declaration. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to image him is to be given the task or the function mm-hmm. of exercising dominion, stewardship, rulership, whatever language you want to do there. Uh, the other option is to look uh, either at the divine plural, the fact that God says, let us make humans mm-hmm. in our image according to our likeness. Um, uh, and maybe that indicates that the image should be heard against the backdrop of some kind of plurality in God's being, uh, whether that's kind of um, a proleptic reference to the Trinity 
or some more vague sort of plurality. Heavenly or language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you, if nothing else, you've got plurals. <laughs> 126. So maybe that hints at uh, the idea that the image should be understood in a more relational sense. Mm-hmm. And then at verse 27, you get the reference to male and female. So it's not just kind of humans generically being made in the image, but specifically male and female. Uh, and so maybe that is also kind of pointing at a relationality. Uh, now, neither of those, the dominion or the relational, right, the text doesn't actually say these are definitions of the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do get, here's the image, and then here's a concept that's really closely connected to the image. So maybe it's the case that one of those two is actually defining the image for us. Hmm. If we looked outside the biblical context, um, uh, so let's say that uh, I think I'm reading Genesis 126, but the author drops these words into the chapter, Solomon Demut, and then doesn't bother to define them. Uh, that it seems reasonable to conclude from that that he does that because the words had a pretty commonly accepted meaning. Uh, so in that context, he didn't have to define them. People just generally knew what a tselem was or what a demut was, an image and a likeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you look in the broader cultural context, you do find uh, in both Egyptian and Mesopotamian uh, settings, uh, similar terms being used to describe uh, either kings as um, uh, representative rulers for the divine being. This is particularly common in Egypt, uh, where the idea is that the pharaoh is an image of some um, divine being, uh, particularly Ra, uh, with the idea being that uh, basically Ra doesn't want to mess with the, the kind of do the messy work of ruling over creation mm-hmm. because it's complicated and it takes a lot of effort. So he's going to designate pharaoh to be his representative ruler, and pharaoh will rule in his place. Um, and then you often get the same language being used to refer not to uh, a human being like Pharaoh, but to the cultic statues, the idols that are used in the ancient world, uh, where those are tselem or demuts, they're images of divine beings in a fairly robust sense, uh, where that idol is kind of the material means by which some divine being is making himself or herself present in the world. Yeah. Uh, but kind of however you go about doing that, it's kind of looking at um, uh, if the terms aren't defined in Genesis 1, then maybe I can look at how they're used elsewhere, and that will give me a sense of what's going on. And so if you were to find that helpful, the the cultural context that you're talking about, would that support, that would support the more of the functional interpretation that you were speaking of, correct? Or would that also support the relational? The most common is to take that in a functional mm-hmm. uh, direction, uh, since you have the idea that, that to call Pharaoh an image in that sense is to say that he's been given the task or the mm-hmm. function of ruling. Uh, so fairly commonly, people will use that to reinforce the dominion idea. So even though the Genesis one twenty six doesn't explicitly say that image means rulership, in that cultural context, to use image language in close proximity to dominion language would be heard in rulership sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get on a little bit, I'll kind of nuance this uh, in kind of the way that I prefer to talk about the image, and it will mm-hmm. pick more up this idle stuff that I just mentioned in a moment. Okay. Uh, a moment ago, but I want to kind of come back to that a little bit later. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, so you're right. The most will take the cultural context in a dominion direction and offer a functional interpretation of the image on that basis. And and from what you're saying and and kind of the values <laughs> it, behind what um, the evidence that you're presenting it, for both of the interpretations, you know the. Um, the Hebrew terms and the the con- the cultural context that tends to be the re- those tend to be the reasons um, that a lot of Old Testament scholars particularly tend to take the relational perspective. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So so just to orient everybody to what we're talking about, there are a variety of interpretations to the image of God. Um, it because of what Mark has described, it can be. Um, uh, it's a bit vague <laughs> in scripture. And so there have been many pages written trying to discuss and think through um, the different ways that it can be understood. And so two of the ones that he, two of the interpretations he's presented is um, the relational perspective and the functional perspective. There's actually probably a couple more coming <laughs> in our conversation. Um, and so, uh, and like I said, the just again, to orient you to the conversation, the, um, Old Testament scholars uh, particularly tend toward the functional um, because of what we've talked about. And um, and so, but let's talk a little bit about the New Testament and um, what we do, because it seems like we don't see as much of the image of God terminology, even though I think it only happens like three times in the Old Testament, something like that. Um, we see a lot more of like the image of Christ and in Christ's image and that kind of thing. So what is the relationship between the image of God and the image of Christ? And then what does that do for how we understand what perhaps a different interpretation of the yeah. image? Great. Um, if I can say one thing before I go on sure. to be to kind of the, the um, various interpretations of the image, um, I skipped over and uh, unfairly the probably the most historically influential interpretation okay. of the image. <laughs> uh, so if you take functional and relational, which is the two that we've talked about so far, historically, most have actually interpreted the image as referring more to something that is intrinsic to human nature, um, uh, something like rationality, morality. Uh, free will, so, something like that. Um, and the logic there actually does flow as well out of Genesis 1, even though the text doesn't say anything about those kinds of capacities. Uh, the logic tends to go more like um, in Genesis 1, 26, only humans are said to be made in the image, even though lots of other creatures are talked about in Genesis 1. Uh, so it stands to reason that the image would be something that differentiates humans from non-human creatures. Hmm. Uh, and since the image relates us to God in some way, then the image should be something that humans have that um, that we have in common to at least some degree with who God is. So a lot of the image work historically has been if we can find that aspect of what it means to be human that differentiates us from creatures, but makes us in some way like God, it stands to reason that uh, that would be the meaning of the image in Genesis 1. Uh, and historically, the fact that we're rational creatures uh, created with the capacity to know and love God is the thing that makes us different from all other uh, creatures. And God clearly is a wise, rational, knowing being. So our, our wisdom, our rationality makes us like God different from the other creatures. So that would be if you're kind of putting the kind of the three Start big options. Putting on the, the labels on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that so that would um, be the sub- substantialist or at what term would you yeah, substantialist is probably the most common. Some okay, term, yeah. 
Okay, yeah. so we've got functional. Again, that's the role, the task, that what it means to be in the image of God is to have a, a job to do. That's kind of broad, but to have a job to do and a task to um, execute, essentially. And then substantialist is that there is something internal that um, God has placed and that is inherent in humanity and then the relational i almost said representational that's mess uh the relational is um that it is is essentially the capacity the the dimension of relationality in us is what makes us in the image of god yeah i'd say just a slightly the relational one's the trickiest of the three um and and you illustrated nicely why it's tricky that way uh, because if you talk about relation, the relational view as of the capacity for relationality, that would actually be a different form of a substantival view. Oh, okay. Capacity for rationality. If it's a capacity for relationality, then we're still talking about this kind of intrinsic feature of humanness. Um, or people will often turn the relationality into more of a verb and say that the relational view is about us relating to God or to one another. Um, which in my mind doesn't work either because that makes it just a different form of the functional view. Hmm. So the relating is this task that we're given to carry out in the world. So for it to be a distinct view, it actually just needs to refer to some kind of brute relation that exists. Um, so it's simply the fact that we exist in relationship to God hmm. and one another, okay. irrespective of any capacities that we might have or any functions that we might perform. That would be a distinctive relational view. Okay, fantastic. See, you know, we prayed beforehand that this would nuance our own thinking, and there you go. <laughs> so, okay, so, um, so the relation, the fact that there is a relationship. Um, okay, so that is the relational interpretation. So let's move to the New Testament real quick before those of you who are hanging with us, um, before we get more to the practical things, we're almost through most of the weeds on describing the different interpretations. So how do we, how do we, um, take the, how do we understand the the different term of image of Christ? Is that talking about image of God? Is it, is it the same? Is it different? What, what's going on there? And then how does that help us understand any kind of way that we should look at the image of God in the New Testament. Yeah, so from the New Testament, you get a pretty decisive turn in the conversation. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27, if we just started there, we're going to emphasize that all humans are made in the image. Uh, so there's no attempt to differentiate. Some are image-bearing humans, and then we have some non-image-bearing humans. It's all humans, full stop, made in the image of God. Uh, you do get a little bit of that in the New Testament. So you have a couple of passages uh, that talk about the image in what sounds more like a generically human sort of way. First Corinthians 11 might be doing that. James 3 might be doing that. Mm -hmm. But almost all of the references to the image in the New Testament are striking in that they're not referring to all humans. They're referring explicitly to Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, so he is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15. Uh, and in Romans 8, it's not only that he is the image, but it's um, being transformed into his image that is our ultimate kind of destiny or telos as human uh, persons. Uh, so we get more of the sense in the New Testament that it's not so much that we're already made in the image. Jesus is the one who is the true imago Dei being. And the good news for the rest of us is that through um, uh, the indwelling of the Spirit in union with Christ, we get to be kind of drawn up into His image-bearing status. 
Uh, so that historically we, we've talked about humans as actually being images of the image. So Jesus is the true image, and then we get to be Christ-like, mm-hmm. and in so doing, we're imaging the one who is himself the true image. Uh, and what that does then for discussions of the image uh, is it refocuses our attention a bit. Uh, it doesn't mean that we neglect kind of humanity in general, uh, but it does mean that a lot of theologians are uh, arguing that to understand the image rightly, we really need to begin not in Genesis 1, but in uh, what we see about the image in the Incarnation. So it's by looking at Jesus that we see ultimately what it means to be the image of God. Okay, and that tends to be referred to as the Christological interpretation. Is that correct? Yes. So um, if I go back to the beginning of the interview, you asked if I had any other kind of interests in this. Christological anthropology has been my main interest for a long time, but my specific question has always been about the relationship between Jesus and the rest of humanity. Hmm. And what does it mean to say that Jesus somehow reveals what it means to be human? Uh, which is a claim that theologians have long made, and um, I've been wanting to press further in that. So a lot of my work is on this, what I call a Christological anthropology, uh, or looking at humanity through the lens provided by Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, But having said that, I actually think it's a pretty broadly shared conviction among theologians uh, that uh, the image needs Mm -hmm. to be defined Christologically in some sense, because the New Testament is just so clear that we can't understand the New Testament, the image rightly, apart from uh, centering it in who Jesus is and what he's done. So that would be something that even somebody having, you know, again, using the labels we've already talked about, the relational interpretation or a functional interpretation, they would they would also concur with that most. Obviously, you can't speak for all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't want to make quite a blanket statement. (laughs) If I'm going to take a, fun- um, a functional interpretation to emphasize dominion, right, I have the idea that Jesus himself is king. Uh, so he's the one who came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, and the good news is all about Jesus being the king and restoring God's rule in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably going to read a, a lot of the miracles that Jesus performs as demonstrations of his kingliness um, in that. <clears throat> uh, and so I have a lot that I'll camp out on in that Jesus reveals what it means to be the image in virtue of being the true king. Uh, <clears throat> relationally, Jesus was all about relationships. Uh, so the fact that he doesn't come and just kind of preach a message all by himself, uh, that he gathers disciples around him, and then more fundamentally that he establishes the church. Uh, and so when we kind of fast forward to the end of the story and we see where this is all headed at the book of Revelation, it's a, the good news about God dwelling eternally with his with His people in and through the Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's clearly a relational story, and I'll go there Christologically. Um, or, um, I mean, Jesus is the Word and the wisdom. Uh, so if that's my interpretation of the image, mm-hmm. then I have resources there. So yeah, if I'm doing any one of those three well, I'm going to work them robustly in what Jesus reveals to us about what it means to be human. Hmm, okay. So so as we think about Jesus being a key in key in our understanding of what the image is or how we should try to make sense of the variety of uses in scripture, how do we understand the unbeliever? What is what is the relationship between the unbeliever some and somebody who will never come to faith? Not just, you know, they're not a believer now, but and and if Jesus is what it means to be in the image of God, does that and you know, they're never conformed to his likeness, does that mean that they are not in the image of God? How do we how do we think through that? Because I think that especially is really important for 
us thinking through how to treat those even in like the public space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got really, I mean, this is kind of a yes or no question here. So you have two options. So, uh, I'm not asking a yes or no. You are more than welcome to take the scholarly uh, both yeah, and. <laughs> yeah. I mean, historically, it's been a yes or no question. With, with, so are unbelievers in the image or are they not? Hmm. Uh, and historically, you do have some people who are, are you not? Um, and that usually uh, aligns with uh, an interpretation where the image is completely lost at the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after you created the image, the image involves something like, let's say, right relationship with God. Uh, and so if right relationship with God is lost at the fall, then the image is lost at the fall. Mm-hmm. And it's only restored in the New Testament, again, through the empowering work of the Spirit in union with the Son. Uh, and so you do get kind of an exclusivist interpretation of the image. That is the minority reports. The most theologians have argued that no, Genesis 1 is pretty clear that all humans are made in the image. Uh, this is where a text like Genesis 9 mm-hmm. often plays, where after the flood, uh, God's talking to Noah after the flood in the covenant, and, and he's telling Noah, hey, you shouldn't go around murdering people, and the reason you shouldn't murder them is because humans have been made in the image of God. Uh, and the fact that this is a post-fall story uh, suggests that the image has continuing significance uh, even after the fall. You get a similar logic in James 3 with respect to even how we speak to one another. Uh, and that has most theologians convinced that we shouldn't talk about the, the the image as lost at the fall. The fall clearly affects the image in some mm-hmm. way. All human persons remain in the image. Um, and of course, each view will have its own way of explaining exactly mm-hmm. how it works out. Uh, it, you're, you're actually hard-pressed to find too many theologians now who will say that the image was lost at the fall such that non-believers are not made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, it is difficult. You, you would, I, that would, that's a tough, that's a tough sell. <laughs> I would have to imagine that they would, no, not very many people would want to go there. Um, okay, so let's move a little bit more to the implications of the image for how we're treating other people and how we're thinking about other people. Um, so maybe the first place to start is in a little bit, maybe even in the spirit of what you were talking about with how do we learn what it means to be human by looking at Christ and, and that relationship. What, what is the proper way for us to think about? So if we are made in the image of God, does that mean we reveal something about God? Does that, is that an okay way to think that, you know, we can look at ourselves and think something about God, you know, is that allowed, you know, how, how do we think about, um, what it means to be in the image and what we know about God because of ourselves. 
Yeah, so as we get into the implications bit, this is what we're going to start to, uh, I think, kind of float over to why I end up talking about the image slightly differently than any of the three that we've talked about so far. Hmm. Um, uh, the logic of all three of these does live a little bit off of the idea that to image God means to resemble God in some way, so that resemblance um, is often just kind of assumed to be a part of image language. Uh, and if to image God means to resemble God in some way, then that would allow a kind of uh, anthropological move where we can go from, well, humans are like this, mm -hmm. that's something about who God is uh, in virtue of the image. Um, I'm not convinced that image means resemblance. Um, and so I tend not to be uh, super excited about that particular kind of move. <laughs> about that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if I just kind of briefly back up to the idle language, mm -hmm. uh, I, I do think there's at least something to be said about understanding the image against the backdrop of the ancient Near Eastern conception of an idol. Um, maybe not as the exclusive way of understanding the image, but as a really helpful way that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, and so if you think about an idol in the ancient world as the material means by which a divine being manifests presence in the world. Uh, so if you go and create an idol, I'm going to assume that you probably don't do that regularly, but if you were to go create an idol... Just so happens I don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a tendency to confuse ourselves a bit with idol language because we think that if you go uh, make yourself an idol, that what I'm saying is you go carve a statue mm -hmm. uh, and then you call it by the name of some god and that's your idol. Uh, and that actually isn't very accurate to how the ancient world thought uh, that carving the statue was just the first step in the process. If you're actually making an idol, there's a whole set of, of uh, rituals and ceremonies that they would take that statue. Actually, it includes the creation of the statue. So mm. even carving the statue was understood to be a religious ceremonial rite. Uh, but after that, you would take your statue through a whole series of rituals, and it was in virtue of those rituals that a divine being was understood to actually infuse its presence into that material object. So that once that happens, anywhere that you take that statue, that your God is going with you. Uh, it is it is quite literally pre literally present wherever its idol mm. is present. Um, and uh, if the Hebrew language of Selim and Demut are used in the ancient world to describe statues, and basically everybody agrees that that those terms were used to describe what they call cultic statues. I know the word cult is weird for us these days, but <laughs> all they mean are these statues that could be used in these Worship. kinds of yeah. ceremonies. Yeah. Um, so if everyone agrees that the, the terms image and likeness could be used, actually were commonly, most commonly used to refer to these kinds of statues, then to refer to humans as image and likeness in that cultural context would have been heard as describing us as being the material means by which God will manifest his presence in the world. Uh, and so most of what I do with the image is in thinking about the image as um, God seeking to manifest his presence in creation in and through us. So the language of being fruitful and multiplying uh, toward the end of Genesis 1 is to say that we are going to be the means by which God manifests his presence, not just in Eden, but throughout creation. Uh, mm. As we, his image, literally his image bearers 
um, spread his image, his presence throughout the world. So can you just outline for us real quick? Sorry, I'm, I am going to interrupt. What is the difference? Because you said you weren't a fan of the resemblance language. So it's not saying. So what is the difference? What is kind of the nuance that you're making between the two? Just so wherever where everybody's real clear. I going to say, yeah, because uh, the reason that that has me a little bit dissatisfied with the resemblance view is because there's nothing about the idle way of understanding the image that requires resemblance. Uh, the, uh, an idol in the ancient world, um, sometimes they were carved in ways that were understood to look like divine beings, but that wasn't intrinsic to an idol. Now, you could have an idol that was very abstract. Uh, you could have idols that were um, kind of misshapen lumps of rock. You could mm-hmm. have idols that were shaped in all kinds of different ways. So there's nothing about the, the concept of an idol that requires resemblance. Uh, in in uh, partly why I emphasize so much that the idea behind the idol way of understanding the image is God manifesting presence in and through us. That doesn't require me to resemble him in any way in order for idol language to work. Um, now, people sometimes mishear me then as suggesting that I don't think being like God is important. Uh, that would be a mistake as well. We clearly have lots of imitation language in the Bible where it's very clear that God wants us to act like him. Uh, <clears throat> But for understanding the image, the imitation follows from being made in the image of God. Because God has made me to be his image bearer, I am therefore called to imitate him and live in Christ-like manner using New Testament terminology. So that the imitation doesn't define the image. The imitation comes as a consequence of being made in the image. Uh, So that, uh, to go back to the original question... Mm -hmm. I wouldn't use the image to say that I should look at um, some aspect of humanity and draw conclusions about who God is, uh, because the image isn't about resemblance. Uh, And imitation, the logic of imitation moves precisely the opposite direction. It's look at who God is and then try to figure out how we ought to live in the world in light of that. So what you're saying is that the not the it's not in resemblance, it's in is it like presencing God on earth? Yeah. yeah so the, the language of presence is the one that I kind of have to go with. Okay. Um, so when I teach on the image, uh, I talk a lot about the spirit. Mm-hmm. The spirit is kind of the, um, uh, where the biblical authors tend to emphasize God's presence. It's the spirit who makes God present in the world. Uh, then I tend to think that the image of God is a thoroughly pneumatological concept. It's a sp- thoroughly spirit filled, uh, that to be humans in that sense is to be uh, filled with the Spirit to manifest God's presence. Um, Now, that raises questions almost Mm -hmm. immediately about how you differentiate then believers from Mm -hmm. non-believers, or even how you differentiate humans from non-humans, right? Because God's omnipresent. So, what does it mean to say that He's manifesting presence in humans in a way that He's not in the chair next to me? Um, or uh, what do I do with the indwelling language of the Spirit in the New Testament? Uh, And on this one, I just kind of have to punt a little bit. Uh, Language about God's presence in the Bible is tricky, and and theologians have wrestled with this for a long time. We know Mm -hmm. we have to say both that God is omnipresent, but also that we have to recognize at least different kinds, or maybe not different kinds, but different ways in which God is present. Uh, So God seems to be present in the burning bush, in a way that he's not present in the bush, like 30 feet over. Um, God's present in the tabernacle, 
in a way that he's not present in some other tent, right? He's present in it, right? So we know that we have to talk about God being differently present. Uh, and uh, we've just long wrestled with how in the world do you explain how an omnipresent God can be differently present? And there are all kinds of theories on that that we don't need to get into. <laughs> uh, I just say that I'm doing exactly the same thing here, uh, that I can say that the image of God is unique to being human, and the image of God is about God manifesting presence, um, and then just say that means that God is somehow differently present in humans than he is in non-humans. Um, and that uh, when we get to the New Testament and the language of indwelling, I mean, I want to say that something radically important happens at Pentecost, well, and at the fall, um, so that we talk about God being differently present in humans after the fall and then differently present in humans after Pentecost. Um, I don't think, though, that means I need to say that he's non-present throughout that, uh, just that those things make a difference in terms of God's presence, and it's a difference that, that to be honest, I'm still working out in my own head. <laughs> That's fair. Um, so, okay, so let's say... Somebody's hung with us all the way through this conversation and they say, okay, you talked about how all of this impacts how I love my neighbor. So beyond saying, okay, so that person is made in the image of God, you know, I think I heard that in Sunday school at some point, Mm -hmm. how does this conversation about what it does mean to be human and what it means about others' humanity impact how we love our neighbor? how we um, engage people on social media, <laughs> uh, you know, in, uh, in the, just in the public square in general. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, I would want to lead with that the image has historically been used by Christians to ground affirming the full dignity mm-hmm. and full value of all human persons. Uh, that's been the center feature of Christian discourse about the image of God. Uh, we do have, I mean, if you get into the history of the image, there have been times when we haven't done well with that, and the image gets used in ways that exclude certain people explicitly. Mm-hmm. But historically, we've wanted to say, no, image of God means full dignity, full value of all human persons. Um, it might help if I think, so go back to the three categories that we talked about initially, the relational, the functional, and the substantial. Uh, when people talk about those today, they tend to raise worries about all three of them with respect to the kinds of implications, kind of the love your neighbor kinds of implications that are worth being aware of. I don't think they're deal breakers for any of the three, uh, but they are the things that I would say, if you're going to talk about the image in any one of those three ways, you would want to be aware that there's a worry here. So hmm. the, the substantive worry. Um, uh, and the one that people all pick on is that if I'm going to talk about the image in terms of something like rationality, mm-hmm. what does that imply about people who do not seem to express the full range of human rationality? Um, so uh, people who have um, a condition from birth uh, where their mental capacities seem restrained or restricted in some way, uh, could be through a disease or an accident of some kind. So I lapse mm-hmm. into a state. <clears throat> does that mean I'm no longer made in the image of God? Uh, and people who affirm that that view have ways of addressing that, but critics of the view uh, tend to worry that no matter how nuanced you get, uh, that way of talking will almost always result in at least a hierarchicalized way of mm-hmm. thinking about where some people are more image-bearing and some people are less, with the possibility that some people might end up being so less that they're not really in the image at all. Uh, so people writing in disability theology tend to be particularly worried about the implications of that view of the image for the people that they work with. 
On the functional view, um, uh, a worry that I don't think comes up quite as often, I'm a little bit puzzled as to why this is. Uh, the um, Let's take the disability theology worry about the kind of the mm-hmm. rational view. In my mind, it applies straightforwardly. To Your ability function. to do things. <laughs> um, uh, now, sometimes people will appeal to things like, well, maybe it's not an individual task. Maybe it's a corporate task. Um, and that's almost certainly true that there are individual and corporate mm-hmm. involved in the image. Uh, but the reality is that we don't talk about the image as being an exclusively corporate thing. Uh, that The logic of the image biblically is not just that we are made in the image, as true mm-hmm. as that is, but it's that you are made in the image and that I am made in the image. So that the way you treat me as an individual is, uh, should be shaped by the reality that I am made in the image of God. Um, and so the functional view does raise some of those questions. If I am not, for some reason, capable of participating in whatever this function is, let's say it's rulership. Um, the other thing I worry about a little bit is uh, the way that a functional view talks about being human in uh, what sounds to me like highly performative terms. Mm. That at the end of the day, what it truly means to be human is to behave or to perform in certain kinds of ways. Um, And uh, when I work particularly with my middle and high school students now, uh, they are so thoroughly convinced that uh, the story of the Bible is a performative story. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a story that's about doing and performing in the right kinds of ways that I worry about telling them that the image is about performance and function because uh, I'm just reinforcing the idea that that's what the Bible is ultimately about. Now, they know that salvation by grace through faith, yeah, Jesus, grace. Like all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think deep down, they think that the uh, the story actually starts performatively and then um, either gets changed to a story that's about grace at the end of the day or like some grace gets kind of layered over the top of a fundamentally... Or grace lets us then perform. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It's still, ultimately, it's a story that's about performing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, um, and so I, I really worry, at least if you're going to articulate dominion or function or whatnot as the definition of the image, I think we really need to do a good job explaining how that doesn't land us in that sort of kind of performative account of what it means to be human. Okay. Um, and then the relational view, I'll just say that 99% of what I hear on the relational view, as I mentioned earlier, it really does sound to me like just the substantival or the um, functional view, right? A capacity for relationship or relating, in which case both of those worries would just kind of come right back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, like about the capacity for relationality, what do I do with people who don't have whatever the requisite capacities are to participate in those relationships? If I turn it into a verb, um, what happens if I'm no longer capable of relating mm-hmm. in the right ways? Um, so if I focused in on kind of just that pure relationality, um, then um, I'll just say my worry there is I'm not entirely certain what we mean by that. Um, what is this just kind of pure, but what makes our, the relationship that we're experiencing right now kind of different from the relationship between me and this chair next to me? Mm-hmm. It's not about capacities or functions or whatnot. If anything, I'm in a closer relationship with the chair right now than I am to you. Uh, but an image of God sort of relationality wants to uh, dig deeper than that. Wants to say there's something fundamentally different about what's going on between us than what's going on between me and the chair. Um, that's kind of a subsidiary worry for me. Yeah. Uh, kind of a deeper worry is 
does it lend itself to this performative or does it have implications for the full humanity of all human persons? So I feel like what I'm hearing from you is, is one of the core things that we take away from the image doctrine with regard to others is, is the dignity piece um, that each person has deeply um, ingrained, whether or not it's inherent or not is up to the interpretation, but (laughs) deeply um, dignity. And, and we are to honor that by our words and our actions. Like you, and like you were even talking about earlier with um, imitation of Christ, imitation of God. And, um, and so is there anything else that you would add than dignity? Um, well, dignity and value, they're, I mean, they're, they're value. pretty inseparable. Yeah. I like to use both words because people hear them somewhat differently. Uh, that, that really the idea behind image of God language uh, fundamentally has always been to, to pick out something that is unique about human persons that has us ascribing to them and interacting with them, with, with ourselves, um, in a way that is shaped by that commitment to dignity and value. Hmm. Uh, I'll say that one of the things that I have fun with on the idol view um, is uh, the idol view. I don't know if anyone actually calls it that, but <laughs> understanding the image against the backdrop mm-hmm. of that concept um, is, so if I think uh, that you are uh, an ancient Near Eastern kind of person and you've gone on and you've made that statue uh, and you took it through the rituals and it became um, uh, the physical means by which your God is manifesting presence in the world, like that's the thing that you understand that idol to be. And then you take it home and you set it on your fireplace mantle. Uh, and I walk into your house and I see the idol sitting on top of your fireplace mantle. And let's say that I am also a, a Dagon worshiper, uh, which, which I'm not, in case anyone's curious. Uh, the way that I treat that statue is going to be thoroughly informed by the fact that I view it as the means by which a divine being is making itself present in the world. Hmm. Right? So I'm not going to just kind of walk over and flippantly knock it off the fireplace mantle. That that would be um, an unthinkable act mm-hmm. for me because of how I now conceive of that. Uh, and so when I have time to kind of sit, like to think through the love your neighbor piece of this deeply with people is to encourage them to imagine what it would be look like to turn and see their neighbor as being that kind of a thing. Mm, that neighbor, kind of presence. Yes. The one through whom their God is manifesting presence. Uh, so that the way that we treat it, whether it's Genesis 9, don't kill that person, all right, uh, or James 3, even be mindful of how you speak about that person, or lots of biblical passages there, even be careful how you think about mm-hmm. that person. They're all being shaped by the reality of that person is the means by which God is making himself present in the world. That's a powerful way of shaping the way that you view the person next to you. Um, I also like to encourage people to and look at the mirror and think those same thoughts as they hmm. reflect they are as a person made in the image of God. Fantastic. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your time, Mark. We are, we are our time is up. And um, that was just, I think you rounded it out really well <laughs> with how we need to um, think about others and um, the dignity and value we need to ascribe them because we are made in the image and we presence him um, daily. 
And and so, again, just thank you so much for your time and your insight. We really appreciate. And we're so glad that the Lord called you to this out of youth ministry. <laughs> and um, yeah, again, just really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you very much, Kim. This was fun. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you to those who are are listening for joining us on the table. And we would just encourage you if you enjoyed this podcast to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we hope that you join us next week when we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.